This morning, as we prepare ourselves for all that this coming week holds, we want to make sure that we have the the person of Jesus and who he truly is, his true identity, in our minds clearly. Most of us want to, to be known for who we truly are. And we feel a little uncomfortable when someone misconstrues or misperceives that identity. Back when I was working as a high school teacher in my mid-20s, I would occasionally attend conferences or other large events where there would be students from other high schools in attendance. And if I had my hair cut short like it is today and I was cleanly shaven like it is right now, Sometimes these students would approach me and they'd say, Hey, what high school do you go to? What grade are you in? You know, what teacher are you here with? And it was awkward to explain that I was, in fact, one of the teachers and these were my students. Now, I know we often try to prolong our sense of youthfulness, but at that time in my life, it, it wasn't so much fun. Right? It just felt awkward. Because who we truly are matters. And again, when, when there's that disconnect, we experience some level of discomfort. I read a, a story in, uh, found this on the internet this week, that back in 2006, a guy named Alan Heckard, who lives out in Portland, Oregon, filed a lawsuit against Michael Jordan and against the, the entire company, corporation of Nike Shoes. And the lawsuit was filed on the grounds that he was constantly being accused of looking like Mike. According to the Chicago Tribune at the time, his suit was suing for defamation, permanent injury, emotional pain, and suffering to the tune of $800 million. (laughs) I don't think the lawsuit went anywhere. But, but it goes to prove, right, this, this sense of disconnect that when we are pigeonholed or pinned into an identity that's not our own, there is injury that takes place. Heckard said simply in one of these interviews, I just want to be recognized as me. Well, today on Palm Sunday, we remember how Jesus entered Jerusalem to great fanfare to great acclamation, to loud hosannas and expectations of literally messianic proportions. But we also know that as Holy Week progressed, the crowds experienced their own case of mistaken identity. As Jesus moved beyond Palm Sunday and he moved toward Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and then the silence of Saturday, Jesus no longer looked like any king, any messiah that they thought they were welcoming with victorious palm branches. What happened there? Where did things go wrong? Well, I don't think it, it lies with Jesus. Jesus knew what he was about. He knew what he was headed into. But again, there was a misconception among his followers. To help us see through some of that confusion and some of that disconnect this morning, I actually want to take us back to a passage and to a conversation that took place 
weeks, maybe even a month or two before Palm Sunday. Where Jesus, in the quiet hills of Galilee, gathers his disciples to him. And he asks them this question. Who do you think I am? Jesus seeks to close the distance between their perception and his reality. I think that's a question he would put to us today as well. Who do we say Jesus is? And who is he in reality? Do those two things fit? If you turn with me then to Mark chapter 8, we'll be picking up in verse 27 here in just a moment. Let me pray for us as we open God's word. Jesus, thank you that you have always seen yourself with clarity. Jesus, thank you for your uncompromising vision of your mission, your kingdom, your willingness to take on all that Messiah was meant to take on, even the bits we would have left out. Lord, I pray that as we read and hear your word proclaimed this morning, may my words as I teach, may the meditations of all our hearts be found pleasing. May they be found accurate. May they reflect, in fact, your heart and your truth today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. By the time we get to the eighth chapter of Mark's gospel here, Jesus and his disciples have crisscrossed nearly the entire region of Galilee. All the villages, every side of the lake, And they now find themselves in its kind of remote, most northern corner of what was Palestine, or Israel at the time. And they are there, sort of likely in retreat, it seems. Jesus is is pulling them away to to teach and to spend time with them. But we also know that, that this trip up to the northern portion of Galilee is sort of a hinge in the Gospels. And from this point forward, Jesus and his disciples are going to turn their attention south. And they're going to begin the long journey to Jerusalem and to all that waits for them there. Let's pick up with verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You can see in this brief conversation the the need to arrive at an identity to identify who Jesus is. Back in my college days, when a guy and a girl started spending time together with each other, we had a a kind of code language that we would use. And as we saw these things unfold, after a few weeks went by, usually someone, one of our friends, would ask that person, 
hey, have you, have you guys had a DTR yet? I don't know if that phrase was used by any of you. But a DTR was basically this. You would go for a walk. Maybe you'd take that person out for coffee. And over the course of that conversation, you attempted to define the relationship, right? This guy and this girl that were spending time together had to clarify, is, is this more than just a friendship, right? Is this headed somewhere? We need clarity. We need definition. Well, here in the mountains of northern Galilee, Jesus and his disciples have spent some significant time together by now. They've spent a few years with each other. And they have seen Jesus do the miraculous. They've seen Jesus heal. They've heard Jesus teach. But at this point, it feels like Jesus is pulling them aside to have one of these conversations. To define the relationship. But to get there, to sort of warm them up to, to that more personal conversation, Jesus starts with, a roundabout kind of question. Verse 27. Jesus begins by saying, Who do the people out there say I am? Jesus says, Process with me a little bit of the gossip you're hearing. As you, as you meet with, as we travel through these villages, what are people saying? What are the rumors that are circulating? And the disciples come back with a variety of answers. They say, Jesus, some people think you're like John the Baptist. Some of, you, some of them think you are Elijah. Others identify any one of a number of the Old Testament prophets. And they, they kind of think that you have brought these identities back to life somehow. You're, you're reappearing now in the flesh. I think it's interesting to note that all the answers the disciples give are stories or, or people or identities from the past. Right? They're, they're putting Jesus into old wineskins, so to speak. They're, they're putting in him, him into a familiar category that they can understand somehow. We could ask ourselves the same question today. Right? What boxes do we attempt to fit Jesus into What boxes and and paradigms and movements do we try to fit Jesus into more broadly as a culture? Sometimes we hear about Jesus as the social crusader. Sometimes we hear about Jesus as our therapeutic buddy. Sometimes we hear about Jesus as the enforcer of morality. And there are books and there are movements for just about every one of these conceptions of who Jesus is. But Jesus wants us to sort out all of those competing paradigms. And he wants to make the question personal for us. Look at verse 29. It's easy to talk about somebody else's ideas. But Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? If you had that question put to you this morning, how would you answer? How would you answer with sincerity? Who do you say Jesus is? Who is he to you? And with Jesus right there before them, things suddenly grow quiet. 
And the only one gutsy enough, the only one bold enough to break the silence is Peter. Only he is brave enough to, to say what I assume all the disciples are thinking and wondering. He says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Notice Peter doesn't pull a label from the past of Israel, so to speak. Right? He, he doesn't take someone that Israel already knows or has experienced and apply that to Jesus. Instead, Peter selects a title or an identity for Jesus that is full of anticipation, full of future possibility. He says, Jesus, you are Messiah. You are Israel's anointed one, is what that term meant. You are the long-awaited deliverer, Jesus. And in doing so, Peter is defining the kind of relationship he hopes to have with Jesus. And even though Peter's confession is, is new and hopeful and full of excitement, we also see that it comes loaded with expectation. Even though Israel had never seen or encountered the Messiah, they just knew what he was going to be like. They had it figured out ahead of time. Look at how Jesus responds to Peter in verse 30. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I've bolded here in verse 30 and 32 these two phrases. Jesus warned them and Peter rebuked him. Because they're actually the same verb in Greek. And and they both kind of represent the need to, to readjust or reconfigure our understandings and definitions. On the heels of Peter's gutsy and and profound confession that Jesus is the Messiah, we get what I think is kind of a confusing response out of Jesus. If we were to go to Matthew's Gospel, we know that that after Peter makes this confession, Jesus does endorse, he, he praises, he blesses, Peter's faith in seeing him as Messiah. He confirms that he is indeed the one Israel has been longing for, praying to come. But then here in verse 30, Jesus warns them. Literally, he rebukes, he he censures, he quiets the disciples from any further Messiah talk. That's strange. Why would he bless them but then silence them? Well, I wonder if if it's not because Jesus wants to slow them down because perhaps they don't really understand what that word means. Is Jesus silencing them and warning them not to speak of the Messiah until they walk the road 
to Jerusalem with him. Until they see how Messiah fits into God's plans and God's expectation. And in the kingdom that he is seeking to establish. Jesus begins to unpack that word in verse 31. And and he actually switches terms. He uses son of man instead, which is language from the prophet Daniel. He says, the one you have waited for, the son of man, the Messiah, when he gets to Jerusalem, the powerful and the impressive ones of our day will reject him. And they will sentence this Messiah to death. Right? Not until you have seen this part of the Messiah's glory will you understand who he is. One of the things that I am dangerously good at is creating language about Jesus. Right? Of, of finding special words and, and titles. And you go to seminary and you get you know, books full of this stuff. And, and, and the result is that I sure know how to talk about Jesus. I know how to tell people who I think he is. I know how to, to, to describe him. But I think the concern that Jesus raises in these few verses, for me, is whether I in fact know what I'm talking about. Do I know who I'm speaking of? Do I even know what I'm saying? Sometimes, perhaps, God would be better served by my silence for a season. Long enough that that Jesus can get out in front of me, that Jesus can get out so that I can see where he is headed, so that I can hear him speak plainly, as Mark says, about his intentions. The trouble is, if we're anything like Simon Peter, though, as we begin to hear what Jesus has planned, that that plan, that Jesus, that identity is troubling. And we are tempted to reject it, tempted to set it aside. Look at verse 32. Peter struggles with what Jesus says plainly. And he thinks, you know, if if I have the Messiah right here, if I have the anointed one of God beside me, doesn't that rule out the possibility of suffering? Doesn't that rule out the possibility of rejection and death? And with all the human wisdom, all the assurance Peter can muster, he steps out in front of Jesus. And now it's his turn to silence the Messiah. He rebukes Jesus. It's almost like he pulls Jesus aside and he says, Jesus, we we need to have a little talk here. This plan of yours, this identity of yours, well, it doesn't sound all that positive. Jesus, I have a wonderful plan for your life and for mine. How about I clue you in? Do we have those conversations with Jesus sometimes? Probably not out loud. Most of us aren't that bold. But subconsciously, quietly, right, we, we struggle. We, we have this ongoing dialogue where we are seeking to conform Jesus to what we'd like him to be. 
and become. Jesus, how about I come to church? Jesus, how about you teach me how to pray? How about you you teach me how to grow into all of these these categories and and patterns and lifestyles of discipleship? But, But in return, how about you make sure things stay predictable? How about you make sure there's, there's no heartbreak, there's no personal attack, there's no cancer, there's no unexpected death? Jesus, doesn't that sound like the good news you keep talking about? Just, just a nice, predictable, straight path for us to walk with you. And I suppose all of that even sounds reasonable. It sounds attractive. It sounds comforting to us. But it just simply isn't what most of us will experience in this life. And it most certainly is not how Jesus defines his gospel. It's not what he means when he says good news. Look with me at verses 33 through 35 in conclusion this morning. What does Jesus have to say about the gospel? When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. We can kind of envision, maybe we could diagram what's happening here visually. It might look sort of like a, a replay on Monday Night Football. Right? And out front you have Jesus, the, the rabbi, the master. And he has a play. He, he knows where he's headed. He is headed to Jerusalem. Right? He knows that this is where they need to go. And it's not an easy road to walk. But Jesus, not liking the play call, he steps out in front of Jesus. He, he does this whole rebuking and recasting and, and re-envisioning thing with Jesus. And he says, how about we plug in an alternate route? How about we walk a road that's more messianic, more entitled, more privileged, more comfortable? But before Peter can redirect things, Jesus looks back at his disciples and he says to Peter, get behind me. He says to Peter, if you want to be among my disciples, then you you need to take all of those expectations, all of those aspirations you have and leave them back here. Right? Disciples, followers of Jesus do not control, they do not manipulate They follow Jesus. And Jesus goes so far as to call Peter's aspirations satanic. 
Because the essence of Satan's identity, the essence of Satan's scheme, is always to elevate our perspective, human perspective, limited perspective to the place of God. The scheme of Satan is to sign Jesus up to and to conform him to the plans we are making. But Jesus knows something about his identity that we don't. Right? He, he knows that the only road which can overturn sin and overturn death and overturn rebellion and enmity and destruction is the road to the cross. Right? Jesus trusts that in the, the power and the wisdom of God himself, even his suffering can be redeemed in that way. Jesus knows all that, but for Jesus, the, the greater challenge is not walking that road himself. It's finding disciples. It's finding followers who will walk it with him. Who will follow him into what he calls a life-losing form of discipleship. Yes, the gospel of Jesus is full of hope. Yes, the gospel locates us in the family of God. Yes, the the gospel invites us to know the healing and restoring power of Jesus. But the voice of the gospel also includes rebuke. It also includes the words of verse 35. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and my gospel will save it. Somehow, Jesus says, the good news includes the cross. And not just his cross, but a cross for each one of us. Right? Somehow, the good news means losing the life we have spent most of our lives protecting and shielding and hedging our bets to, to protect, keep safe. Listen to how Dallas Willard puts this concept in his book, Renovation of the Heart. He says, Those who are not genuinely convinced that the only bargain in life is surrendering ourselves to Jesus and his cause, abandoning all that we have to love, that all that we love to him and for him. If we, cannot, if we do not do that, we cannot learn the other lessons Jesus has to teach us. He goes on to say, the cross we must take up is laid upon all our obsessive and partial desires so that the broad reach of God's love can integrate for us a whole and eternal life with him. If we do not believe that the cross is good news, that death to our partial and obsessive desires, if we don't believe that is good news, then we cannot follow Jesus into the fullness of his life. I want to close with one very simple application this morning. As we head into Holy Week, as we sing about, as we read about, as we visualize and enact the passion of Jesus Christ and his cross. I think Jesus' words here in Mark 8 
encourage us to remember that, that that cross belongs not only to him, but to us. Right? The road that he walks to Jerusalem is not one he walks alone, but that he calls us to walk with him and beside him. That we, as we see Jesus give away his life, surrender his life for us this week, he's calling us to do the very same thing. Right? So that we might find the good news the rescue, the real life of Jesus. In that whatever we have forfeited, we are joined to him. Let me pray for us that, that we could see that, that we could understand that, that we could identify that rightly. Jesus, you have placed the cross before us as a gift that we struggle to understand. I struggle to understand. Lord, help us to appreciate, help us to worship you as the crucified Messiah, the one who has given your life in our place, in our stead, where we could not give it. But Lord, help us to also take that next step. follow you in life losing discipleship. To release to you whatever part of our lives we are still clinging to. Lord, any expectations and assumptions and demands we have for you that we have yet to surrender. Lord, help us to walk with you the road to the cross so that we may be joined to you in the power of of your resurrection life. Jesus, it's in your strong, powerful name we pray.